0: The reading this evening will be from Romans chapter 8, verses 9 through 13. Romans 8, verses 9 through 13. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. So, then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if, but if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Well, good evening, church. <clears throat> We're getting back into our series on Romans chapter 8. We're into part number 4 of this 9-part series that we've titled, A New Life. And what we've said each week is that uh, the way Christianity is described in the Bible is not just an improved life or a modified life or a changed life. While all of those things happen in Christianity, your life does change. Hopefully it improves and there is modification to it. But the way Christianity is described in the Bible is a new life, like a new birth. And sometimes it's described even from death to life. And what we've said over and over is that for us to really experience Christianity as a new life, this new thing that we have never had before, we can't just be dependent upon waiting for internal spiritual combustion to take place, so to speak, like we're just sitting around and hoping that one day our heart just leaps for joy inside of us and everything just comes together and makes sense. Um, this idea of Christianity being a new life is not just this individual, personal, inside-your-own-being experience. Christianity as a new life is people responding to the new objective realities because of Jesus Christ. There are objective realities in the world now that Jesus Christ did descend into the earth as God became man, that's a reality. Jesus Christ lived a perfect life, a righteous life, that's a reality. Jesus Christ went to the cross by the hands of the Romans offered up by the Jews, that's a reality. And at the cross, in the cosmic realm, a reality took place at the cross the wrath of God was satisfied, sin was then paid for, righteousness was offered as a free gift from Jesus Christ, and Jesus went into the grave as a dead man, body and soul separated. That's a reality. And three days later, those things were reconnected, and his body, lifeless body, was reanimated, brought back to life, resurrected from the dead in some 40 days later, he ascended where he is right now as a living being in the presence of God advocating for you, his child. Now, whether you believe any of that or not, does not change the objective fact that those are realities. But when people learn of those realities now in the world, that there is a hope that lies for Christians, for people to understand who Jesus is and respond to that, when you understand that and you begin to respond to these new realities in Jesus Christ, you then become a new person. You won't become a new person by just closing your eyes and meditating for 20 minutes a day and hoping that something sparks inside of you. You become a new person by understanding what the realities are in Christianity and then responding to them. Tonight, our text is focused on one thing, as we talk about, uh, we, so far we've talked about a new freedom, uh, a new solution, a new mindset, and tonight we're going to talk about a new kind of power, a new power. Uh, and the text that Bryce read for us tonight is focused on really one thing, but you've got to read carefully to see what it's focused on, because the words that, you, that are used to describe what it's focusing on are kind of generic words, and those, that phrase is, What is inside of you? This text is really dialed into asking the question and understanding what is in you. What's in you right now? The message of the text is actually contingent upon this. If you look in verse 9, it says, If in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. If in fact. That's a big if, right? Meaning, if the Spirit of God doesn't dwell in you, what the Bible has to say in the next following verses really doesn't make much sense to you if God's Spirit is not in you, but if the Spirit of God is in you, if that reality is there, the rest of this makes sense. It's contingent upon that. And so the phrase, what is in you? If I asked you, like, what's inside of you? What's in you? That's a pretty vague statement, right? You would need some clarification from me if I asked you that question. You would want to understand a little bit more about what I meant. And so to say that something is in you is really um, kind of a generic statement. In fact, this is one of those statements that when you go back to the original language of the New Testament, it doesn't really even offer you any more insight. You know, sometimes you can go back to the original language and there be this um, really in-depth understanding of a particular word that gives you insight to what the Bible means by that phrase, in you, or something like that. Well, when you go back to this phrase, in you, The original language doesn't really help us. It's just the word in and the word you. That's all it is. And so you and I have to rely upon summary of Scripture, what the rest of Scripture has to say about this topic to make sense of it. So for them to say something was in you, when they were talking about what things were inside of you, what they were saying was the things that were, um, so to speak, in your heart. Now, that phrase, in your heart, is also in our culture loaded with all kinds of barriers in your heart. Uh, the heart was not for the first-century Christians, the first-century people. This emotional, passion-filled motor of a person's life—that's that, not really what the heart was. You know, we talk today like the heart is just like the seat of passion, and when we think of passion now, we think of like Calvin Klein cologne and lipstick and you know high-energy emotion and. That's not really what they were talking about when they were talking about in your heart and in your passion. That's not what they meant. The heart for these first century people was the center of a person. To say something was in you or in your heart was to say, that's what you live for. That's, the, that's what you center your life all around That's the thing you stand on. That's the thing, if it goes well, you're doing well. If it goes bad, you're doing bad. That's the thing that you build your life on. That's the thing that drives you in your life. It's the thing that you turn to for comfort, for guidance, for assurance, for direction. To say something was in you was to say, that is on the throne of your heart. It governs your life and it has the power over the way that you live. That's what's in you. So pause just for a second and ask yourself, what's in you? It's a tough question, isn't it? I, I, I admit, that's hard. I, I sat there this week and thought, how would I answer, you know, Paul, like kind of poking me in the chest. You know, what's, what's in you, son? You know, he'd probably call me son or champ or something like that. And, and you know, like, like younger than him. And, what's in you? I had a hard time coming up with that. Because I find in myself a lot of things driving me. A lot of things. I've got a lot of really important things in my life. I've got a family that I really care about and a job that I love to come to. And I've got you know, um, uh, goals that I have for my family's stability and wealth and things like that. I've got a lot of things driving me. And when I, somebody asks me, what's in you? What drives you? Whew, that's hard to really narrow down and isolate. Strange, isn't it? Well, let me ask you this question. How does something get actually inside of you? How does it actually get there? How do these things get there, so to speak? And so here's let me break it down very simply in this way. Whatever is actually in you, and when I say in you, I mean what's driving your life. We've all got something driving our life. Something that has power that governs our life. Whatever is in us is there because of The promises that thing has made to us. And the power we believe that thing has to deliver those promises. I'm going to say that again because it's it's kind of a theory statement. Whatever is in you, I don't know what's in you and sometimes it's hard to know what's in me. What really drives me, what I build my life upon. Whatever is in you, whatever drives your life, whatever really turns your emotions, whatever guides your mind, whatever's in you is there. It's on the throne of your heart because... Of the promises it has made to you, I can do this for you. And the power that you've ascribed to it, that it can deliver on those promises. That's how it got there. Those promises fall into four basic categories. We don't have time to break down this text, but if you look in Luke chapter 6, verses 24 through 26, Jesus is going through, uh, it's Luke's version of the Sermon on the Mount, where he's going through the blessings and the woes. And he reveals basically the four main things that drive the kingdom of this world. Uh, The four main things that really drive humanity outside of God. And he says these woes, woe to you, woe to you, four times. And it has to do with these four things. He says, woe to you who are rich. Woe to you who are full. Woe to you who laugh. And woe to you who seek um, prestige amongst people. What he's getting around are these four things, these four basic categories that I believe drive um, the, these sort of promises that get inside of us. And they are security, comfort, pleasure, and honor. I want to suggest to you that, that the thing that's in you, that if it's not God, is probably going to fall into one of those four categories. Now, it has a bunch of variations to it. Like, um, on the surface, it might look like a career, or it might look like a financial goal, or it might look like family relationships, or it might look like you know, uh, civic uh, reputation or something like that. But at the core of those things are our desire for security, our desire for comfort, our desire for pleasure, and our desire for honor. We long for those things. And if you look around, there's a host of things in this world promising to give you that. All kinds of things promising to give you that. And we build our lives upon those things when we believe that they have the power to give us those things. All of these things promise to give us what we are calling life. But unfortunately, here's what happens. These things that promise to give us life that are not God, that are of human strength, of human will, of human intuition, they promise to give us life, but they end up taking our life. In the short version, it's what we call sin, and it's wages. As Paul said just two chapters before in Romans chapter 6, the wages of sin is death. Here's how Jesus put it in Mark chapter 7. He said, the thing that's in you, what's in your heart, is the thing that defiles you or ruins you. You see, what he's getting at is that you and I have given something other than God power in our life to give us life. We've turned to other things other than God to give us what the Bible calls zoe, fullness of life. We've turned to things to something other than God to give us security or comfort or pleasure or um, what was that honor. We've, we've turned to these things and said give us these things and they don't have the ability to give it to us. And they eventually take our life from us. It's the law of sin. The law of sin works that way. That it promises to give you life and it eventually takes your life. You can see this work itself out in all kinds of atmos- uh, all kinds of ways. Just think about—it's uh, kind of the law of how things work that are that that sound like they're good, but end up being bad for you. For example, um, anybody in here likes soda pop? Lisa, raise your hand. <laughs> we, yeah, we pop, right? Y'all like to drink pop? You ever notice that pop promises like to quench your thirst? There's even a a catchphrase on Sprite. You know, has the ability to quench your thirst. But you know the actual ingredients in pop are designed to make you more thirsty. Right? Did you know that? So you crack the can and it goes, and it's cold, and you drink it, and the actual things that are inside of that pop, you know, they put sodium, you don't need sodium in pop, but you know why they put sodium in pop? To make you thirsty. And then it makes you go to the bathroom more, and you go to the bathroom more, and you think, oh man, I've gone to the bathroom, I must be thirsty again, let me crack another, now listen, I drink pop sometimes. I'm not. I'm not jumping on you. I'm just saying. I'm just showing the law of how this works. Sin works that way. It promises to solve your problem when really it's giving you more problems. For example, um, oftentimes people pursue earning money to scratch that security itch. They they want to earn more money because if they earn money, so they've given the power of promising life to themselves by earning money. So if they earn more money, they'll feel secure and they'll feel okay. People do that. It promises to give you security, but here's what happens when people do that. Do they ever feel like they have enough? People that have bought into the concept that if I get more money, I'll finally be secure and then I'll be okay. Do they ever really have enough? You ever heard that, there's this, I don't know if it was an actual experiment or not, but uh, think in your head right now, um, what amount of money per year, salary, do you consider to be rich? Like, somebody's rich. Think right now. What's the actual dollar amount? You said, man, if somebody makes that much money, they're rich. And you know, a vast majority of people, you know what they think of? Just double their own income. How many of you are pretty close to double your income? Right? Make 40,000. If I made 80, I'm rich. Make eight, If you make 80, you're like, if I make 160, that's rich. That's what most people do. Why? Because the promise that if you just get a little bit more, everything will be okay, right? But if you make a million dollars, do you think that person, if they made 160, would feel rich? It's all subjective to us. But the, the promise of money is that if you get enough, you'll be secure, and we never get enough. It never works that way. How about career advancement? Promises to give us honor, right? The higher I go in the chain, let's say I get, you know, uh, director, associate vice president, vice president, senior vice president, executive. How many vice presidents are there now, by the way? Like, it's just like scratching our honor itch, isn't it? Come on, you corporate people, am I right? The titles we give. And we finally get to, let's say, CEO. And you got all the honor in the world, right? How many people love the CEO? You finally get there, right? Floor 44 office, no one's around. How many people love that guy? How many people just adore him, right? And how secure does he feel or she feel in their position? It doesn't deliver on its promise, does it? Or how about indulging in risky behavior, the promise of pleasure, right? Illicit sexual behavior, alcohol, drugs, promises, the time of your life. In fact, People write songs year after year. It's, it's, it's got to be the same words year after year, right? You're going to have the time of your life. This is going to be the best moment. Live for now. All this stuff, right? Indulge in, in um, risky behavior because you dare not miss out on this risky behavior because if you miss out on it, you're going to lose this pleasure. And it promises you that. And yet it delivers to people endless amounts of pain, disease, discomfort, and brokenness. Does it not? Do you see the law of sin? promises to give you life and once you give that sin power it takes life from you it takes life from you paul summarized it this way in our text he called it one word and he said it's just called flesh and the word flesh in the bible does not mean skin it doesn't mean meat it means temporary and of human strength Meaning the things that you can do on your own that are just temporary. And all those things promise to bring you life. And then we give it power to bring us life. And it takes the seat of the throne in our hearts and it drives our life. And then it ends up driving us into the ground into death. And you know what? This is a universal experience for all people in all places and all cultures and all times. And everyone in this room has the same problem. Until Jesus Christ. Until he shows up on the scene. There's a new power available that actually doesn't take your life from you, but gives you life. No other power in the world offers this. This is the magnificent, don't miss this part, this is the magnificent offer of Christianity. There's something new that you have never had access before until Jesus Christ. This is God. Father, Son, the Spirit, not just alongside of you, not just with you, not just available to you, but in you. The phrase, in you, on the throne, controlling your life, your power. A new power available to be in you. One that doesn't take your life, but gives you life, and one that cannot be taken away. Now, look how this functions. In verse 9, Paul gives us this very basic objective statement about how you know that Christ is in you. You know, the the Spirit is in you. It's kind of interesting. He says in verse 9, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. And here's what his point is. When you are in Christ, Christ is then in you. It's that great sort of mystery that Paul talks about so often. He uses the phrase, in him, like 160 some times in his writings. Paul says, you're in him, you're in him, you're in him. And yet here's the reciprocal. When you are in Christ, Christ is then in you. That's the great promise of the upper room when Jesus with his disciples. When I go, I will come. I won't leave you orphans. I will send the Holy Spirit. My Father and I will come make our home in you. We'll be in you. To be in Christ is what we mean to say to be a Christian. The heart of Christianity is when you say, I no longer trust and rely upon myself. Rather, I trust my whole life to be in Jesus Christ. His life, His righteousness, His death, His burial, His resurrection. And when you and I come in faith, repentance, and confession, and are baptized into Christ Jesus, we are saying it is His life, His death, His resurrection, His righteousness that I want my life associated with. And I'll be baptized into Him. That is what it means to be in Jesus Christ. And when you are in Him, the great reality is that He is now in you. I meet a lot of people that don't really know that. Or might say that in theory, right? Like, oh, okay, great, Jesus is in me, but don't really know what that means. You know our great hallmark verse in the church, Acts two thirty-eight. Can you all say it? Repent, therefore, and be baptized for the remission of the sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Did you know that forgiveness of sins is secondary in that verse? Repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of sins. It means cleansing out the temple. So that the primary thing could happen, the Holy Spirit, the gift of the Holy Spirit could be in you. The forgiveness of Jesus Christ was a medium, the means by which now God could again be with you and in you. Okay, you know that now is a fact. Let's get into why that matters. Secondly, verses 10 and 11, when Christ is in you, you've got two main promises in this text. Look in 10 and 11. But if Christ is in you, that's another big if. If Christ is in you, Although the body is, that's present tense, dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. So the first thing he's going to say, the first promise is that if Christ is in you, you now have what the Bible calls life, fullness. Zoe is the word, fullness of life. Now go back to those four things that Jesus said the kingdom of this world is promising you. Security comfort pleasure and honor you now have the real version of those if you understand who jesus is real security real comfort real pleasure and real honor you now have those because jesus christ is in you and in spite of these things if you notice in verse 10 he says that um uh, although the body is dead because of sin what he's recognizing is that we still live in a broken world. Is is a present tense word. The body is still dead because of sin, meaning that we are on the process of dying, all of us, right now. But that won't always be. We're going to see in a moment the promise of hope. But we are still living in a world that is broken by sin, and we're still experiencing the decay of sin in a lot of ways in our physical body. But you and I, in spite of living in a world that has consequences of sin... Sin cannot take away what Jesus has for us. Real security, real comfort, real pleasure, and real honor. And here's how you know you have that. Look at the end of verse 10. The body is dead because of sin. The spirit is life because of what? Righteousness. Now, who's righteousness? How does the spirit give you life because of righteousness? It's the righteousness of Jesus. Now, I wish I had more time to to take you through this, but in John 16, you'll see the work of the Holy Spirit. One of the main things He does, in verse 8 of chapter 16, Jesus says this, And when He comes, the Spirit, He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in Me. So the Holy Spirit is going to convict the world of sin because they don't believe. So his work is the conviction of sin to those who don't believe. But secondly, verse 10, concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father. Now what's Jesus doing in the presence of the Father right now? The the Bible word is advocate, meaning he is your defense lawyer. He has got your back. He is there before the Father saying, he or she is one of mine. They are mine. They're my children. They have trusted in my work and my salvation. They they are one of mine. They have put me on in baptism, Father. They are mine. He's advocating for you right now. And so the Holy Spirit, one of His main responsibilities is not just to be the one that's there to, to sort of pinch you in the side when you do things wrong, but He's also the one that reminds you that you have a righteousness that is beyond anything you could ever create. As Paul said, having righteousness not of my own. Not of my own, but from Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit does that for you. And here's how this works. Here's how this gives you life. You now have security, comfort, pleasure, and honor. Because you know, being reminded by the Holy Spirit who's in you, that the righteousness of Jesus makes you right with God continually. Do you know the Spirit is doing that for you? If you'll let Him on a continual basis? We need to be letting Him do that. That's why he promises to us that if Christ is in you, Paul, without blinking an eye, says, I know you have life. I know you have fullness of life. If God, through the Spirit, is in you, you have life. Because one of the things he does is convinces you of righteousness. Convinces you that you are in right standing with God, that all things are made right with you and God. He's convincing you of that if you'll let him do that. Now, the second promise is this, back in Romans 8. verse 11, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Now this is a future tense. He will give life to your mortal bodies. Meaning this body that I have now that is decaying, that is dying, that will eventually wear out in a world that is broken, there will be a time when this body goes into the earth planted like a seed like Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15. But it will be planted in corruption and raised incorruptible. Planted in dishonor, raised in honor. What he's talking about is the promise of the future hope of a life with God. Never ending. In a world where we will wear a body, where we will dwell with God, where we will live eternally, where we will have the fullness of comfort and pleasure and honor and security. We will have those things. Life. So we have the promise of life, we have the promise of hope that is based upon the power of the Spirit working the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Let me get to the final point, and this is this. When Christ is in you, you not only have the promise of life and a hope, but when Christ is in you, you now have power. Power. Look in verse 12, 12 and 13, this will finish our text. So then, brothers, we are debtors. We are debtors. Paul says that we are debtors. What does it mean to be a debtor? It means you owe somebody something, right? We are debtors. You owe somebody something. When you're a debtor, you are in somebody else's power. You're under power. But he says something really powerful. We are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will Die. This is what he meant in chapter 6 when he says sin no longer has power over us. When you were in sin, when sin was the thing that was in you, when sin was in you, when you were chasing the things of the world, you were a slave to sin. Sin had power over you and it was taking your life and it will take your life if you don't get out of sin. But you and I are debtors. We're still debtors, but not to the flesh anymore, not to sin. You see, we are rather now debtors to The Spirit to life. You see, when we were with sin, we had what you would call an inverse relationship with power. What I mean by that is the more power we gave to our sin to give us life, like, like I trust my money, my job, my family, my status, I trust those things to give me life, the more power you gave to those things, the less power you had the more life it took from you. So there was an inverse relationship. The more power you gave to sin, the less life and power you had. And it left you as what the Bible says, slaves of sin, meaning you give more to him to sin and you get less from him. But when Christ steps in and when Christ is in us, we have what you would call a positive correlation or positive relationship with power. Meaning the more power you give Jesus Christ to be your security, to be your comfort, to be your pleasure, to be your honor. The more power you give Him to give you life, the more power He gives you to have that life. It's positive, meaning you give Him more power, more trust, more faith. He raises your strength, your power, your ability to also defeat that. Look what He says in verse 13. <clears throat> If you live according to the flesh, you will die. But look, but if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. You know, this is the never-ending pursuit of people in the world. It's called self-help or self-improvement. If you go to Barnes & Noble right now, that area is just huge. I, I, I walk around there, you know, once a week or so, and I go to the Christian section and check out the books and read a few for free and put them back. I pay for coffee, but, you know. And I'll walk around the corner, I'll just look at self-help books. And that that section just continues to grow. And what's interesting is when you read, if you ever read self-help articles online or mommy blogs or just anything that talks about self-help, it always says things like this. Here's what you ought to be. Here's what life will be like when you get there. And you're like, yeah, yeah. And it just says, so go get it. Right? That's all self-help can do. I read self-help stuff on whether you're dealing with whatever sin. I read this stuff all the time, and it's like, here's a problem, here's how life can be better, stop doing it, or go get it. And it just leaves you saying, you've got to figure it out. And if you're honest with yourself, you know it doesn't work. No one ever has ever white-knuckled themselves into being amazing, you know? that's no, it's just never happened. But when Christ is in us, The more power we give him to lead us, to guide us, to save us, the more power he gives us to grow. And how does he do that? He says, by the spirit. By the spirit we put to death the deeds of the flesh. Ephesians 6 said that the spirit uses the word of God. It says that the word of God is the sword that belongs to the spirit. Hebrews 4 says that the word of God is sharper than a two-edged sword. Meaning that's what the Spirit uses when we give Him the Word in us. When we feed ourselves the Word, it doesn't mean that you pick the sword up and start swinging at your own heart. It means you're giving the Spirit the sword so that He can do His work on your heart. He changes you. And Hebrews 4 says that the Word of God lays bare the very intentions of your heart. Meaning you do things you don't even know why you do them. You have motivations that you haven't even got to the bottom of yet. But if you'll give the spirit the word of God, he will lay before you and before God, even your very motivations. And yes, that's scary. Uh, Yes, that hurts. Yes, it's uncomfortable. But it is a kind and generous grace of God to do that for us. The spirit eradicates all these other things that you have given power to, if you'll give him the word of God to do it. You see, right now, all of us probably have little things that are trying to sit on many thrones in our heart where we say, yes, Jesus is my Lord, but we've got a bunch of little thrones that we haven't sent prophets out to to destroy the the altars. We've got to give the Spirit the Word of God to go in and destroy those things so that we can have one single-minded, single-focused heart that says, Jesus Christ is Lord above all. Everyone is searching for a power in their life to give them what they want. Everyone is. And everywhere you look, there are promises being made to have the best life now. This is how people sell. Any of you young people like that are majoring in business or college, if you wanna be a good marketer, just promise people to give them a good life and you'll sell whatever. You know, whatever widget you have, if you promise this thing will make their life better, people buy it. If you drive by condominiums, what, what do they have on their billboards, right? People sitting by the pool and there's all these friends and you drive by and you look over and there's like one little floaty ducky like deflated in the pool, like no one's there, right? But people buy the condo because they think, if I buy this condo, I'll have a great life. Or if I buy this alcohol, I'll have a party just like I see on the television. Or if I buy... You see what I'm saying? There are promises constantly being made to give you the best life. And no one can cash that check except Jesus Christ. So, give Him all the power. And you'll see your power to defeat sin... Go through the roof. All right, that's the gospel. Let's stand and sing.